pray. Lord, we do uh, look forward to tonight. We do want to, uh, uh, Lord, we want to better understand you. And, and God, as we begin to wrap up Ezekiel here and, and uh, look at you giving this man kind of that whole scenario of everything that's going to culminate uh, for his people in that time of the millennium period and, and uh, just bringing them together finally into the kingdom and the, the land and all that you promised them culminating uh, for them, Lord, and, and you show it to this guy. And God, I, I just thank you that he's able to write it down, communicate it to us. And Lord, some of it, some of it is just gets bogged down in my mind in details and measurements and all of that, Lord. And, and uh, God, I know that's important, but I just, I just love the idea of gathering those people to worship their God. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would draw us into that place tonight where, where we are so close with you. And as we, as we leave here, the Lord, that we would know that as we go out those doors, we're not leaving you here, but we're taking you with us out into the world, out into the, our community. And God, as we just think of that, I, I pray for uh, those in, in Texas and Missouri and Midwest there who are, who are suffering loss of, of property and family. Lord, just bless them. And every time I think of that, I pray that you'll bring beauty for ashes. Out of all of the hurt and the pain and the agony, Lord, that you would, you would out of that rise up, Lord, truth and justice and bring peace to the hearts that are, that are worried. And so, God, we give you this time and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you remember, we kind of left off and, and looking at Zadok and what the priests were going to do and their functioning. Now, the whole last part of this is dealing with land division and some of the offerings and how to come together. So wrapping everything up, and as we think about it, think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel has been uh, in, uh, I was going to say in bondage, kind of in bondage, but in exile, he's been in Babylon. And hey, imagine, imagine he's been there for uh, most of his life now, and God is revealing to him how things are going to be during the millennium. He's showing him, listen, I am going to keep my promises and I am going to bring my people together and I'm going to gather them all and it's all going to be okay in spite of what you're looking at, in spite of what you're going through, in spite of what you're feeling. You got to trust the Lord. And, and so listen, man, I think as he's shown Ezekiel this, I think Ezekiel, in, 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 in my opinion, Ezekiel's sitting in there going, yes, yes. The more he sees, the more excited he gets. And, and uh, again, as we look at the measurements and stuff, you know, for, for me, I'm thinking, I don't really care how big it is. I don't care how many rods or how many cubits or how many whatevers, you know. It's just the fact that, that God is going to do this. Now, a lot of people spiritualize, especially 45, 46, 47, 48, the last chapters we're looking at. A lot of people say, no, it's all allegorical and it represents this and it represents that. And listen, if it was representing stuff, why would God give such details as to exactly how it's gonna look? If it was just a representation, he usually, when he uses a representation, he said, it's like, and then tells us, not details. I mean, there's extreme details, and we're gonna skip over some. So you guys have to make me a promise. 
You're gonna read in detail 46, 45, 46, 47, 48, because we're gonna kind of jump over some of it as, so we can get through this. So you, you guys gonna do it? All right, man, I'm gonna hold you to it. Next week, you're gonna be accountable. You're gonna to have to answer, and you can't lie because we're in church. <laughs> so let's look, at, let's look at verse one. At least we'll do one verse. So he says, moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land, and its length shall be 25,000 cubits, and its width 10,000, and it shall be holy throughout its territory. So here's what he's saying, man. He'd lay out, and so they're getting ready to divide up the land. So he says, hey, there's gonna be, and, and uh, you know, I'll put this up a little bit early, and it's kind of, I hope you can kind of see part of it, and it kind of gives you an idea of how the land's gonna be. That wide area is what we're talking about now. That's the holy section, and there's a little key on what it all stands for. So listen, man, he's gonna divide, he's gonna divide the land from top to bottom, and we'll talk about that in, in chapter 48, but he's gonna go from top to bottom, and notice how they're just lined up this time, rather than the way they were in Joshua, and I'll give you the reference for Joshua. So it's interesting the way God is, is, is lining it up this time and bringing them all in, they're all getting a portion, but that middle section, that white section is what he's talking about now. So it's, you know, however wide and uh, however high, and it's gonna be, that part then is gonna de be divided up for parts for the P for the prince, and, and uh, L is for the Levites portion, the S is the sanctuary, obviously, the Z is for the, the uh, sons of Zadok, and the X's are where they're gonna put uh, the different workers. So kind of give you an idea of what's going on, and, and then uh, C, the, the C will be the actual city of Jerusalem, but we're gonna see in the end that's not what it's called. It's called something else. So, kind of give you an idea of taking the land back and doing it. Now, something to notice, and we're kind of getting ahead, is there's nobody on the east side of the Jordan. Remember when they came in the land? The tribe, who were the tribes that stayed? Gad and Asher and the half-tribe of Manasseh stayed on the east side and didn't go across. This time, everybody's where they're supposed to be. Kind of interesting, huh? They finally all make it during the millennium. So that's how God's gonna divide it up. So here's what he's saying. You take that center section and you're gonna use that center section and, and you're gonna make it holy for the Lord. And then he keeps giving these figures and, and uh, yeah, I'll read a little bit of it, but I'm sure it doesn't make a, a whole bunch of sense to us. Or a uh, verse two, or... Uh, of this, there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary 500 by 500 rods and 50 cubits around it for open space. So you kind of get any idea? Now here's what I'm thinking. I read that it's, uh, it's gonna be 500 by 500 rods. I don't know how long a rod is. So once again, details, God's given great details, and here's what I know. Ezekiel knew exactly what he was talking about. And the people that Ezekiel was writing to knew exactly what he was talking about. So he's giving the details to them, not so much for us in a sense, it's there that we know God's given details, but for them, imagine if you're sitting in Babylon and you've been captive, man, you've been taken away out of your country and you're sitting there and you're mourning because Jerusalem has been destroyed and it's not there and all of a sudden you get this vision and you start getting this and someone's giving you this. Here's what it does, man, it gives you 
tremendous hope, right? Like God is still on the throne. God is still on, in control. In spite of what my world looks like, in spite of what's going on in my life, and it looks like everything is crashed and burned, and there is no God, yet Ezekiel's telling me there is a God. And he's telling me God hasn't lost me, hasn't lost the way, and hasn't figured out. So the rest of that, listen, three, four, five, they're giving all of the sanctuary, all of those measurements. And then verse six tells us, and you shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long adjacent to the district of the holy section, and it shall belong to the whole house of Israel. So listen, he's saying, you make this, that long section, then out of that you take this little section, for the sanctuary then you take this other section and you make it for the city you make the city of of Jerusalem there that's not going to be Jerusalem anymore and he gives them that measurement and and kind of lays that out and then in verse 9 it says thus says the Lord God enough O princes of Israel remove the violence and the plundering execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord your God. You shall have honest scales and an honest ephah and an honest bath. So here's what's going on. He lays out that portion, and we'll come back to that in a little bit because he does in, in chapter 47. So he starts to lay all that out, but then he begins to talk to the priests he says, or to the leaders, and he says, hey guys, quit ripping the people off. Sometimes I wish he would do that today to some of the pastors. Quit ripping the people off. Don't rip them off and be honest and, and deal with things. But he tells them, listen, man, they're not just ripping them off in ways there. They like messed up the measurements. They messed up. They're, they're like messing everything up. And they're taking advantage of the people. And he says, it's time to stop. Now, we're going to find out they do stop because he brings in a whole different one. And remember, the Levites now have lost their position because they've been ripping the people off. If you remember from last week, remember what the Levites are now? They're just butchers, right? People are bringing an offering in. They're just like taking those those cow those those cows and bulls and they're throwing them on the thing and they're cutting them up and they're lambs and that's all they're getting to do the sons of Zadok get to do the actual offering because they didn't do that so he says listen use honest stuff then he goes through and says you know an ephoth and a bath and how big they're supposed to be which again doesn't make a lot of sense to me the ephoth and the bath shall be in verse 11 of the same measure I'm thinking that helps a lot Right, and I know, listen, I know we have footnotes and we can do stuff today. So you know what? Google that. Google an ephah, Google a bath, and you can put all that together. And he lays all of that out. Now go to verse 16 after we look at all that. And here's what he says. Verse 16, all the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince of Israel. So listen, they have to bring an ephah, they have to bring a bath, they have to bring a lamb. We kind of know what size that is, right? And they have to bring those things and they have to do them as an offering. And I know some people get real uptight like, seriously, during the millennium, they're gonna be offering animals? Uh-huh. I don't like that. Take it up with God. Because they're going to be doing it once again. They're going to be sacrificing animals. Now, listen, I understand. I don't think it's a great thing. I don't want to be a priest then. I'm just going to be hanging out in Bisbee during the millennium. I just, I've already claimed that. That's where I'm going to hang. You guys do hang wherever you want. I'm going to hang in Bisbee. But, but man, think about, listen, think about once again they're doing offerings. It's ugly. Offerings are ugly. Why? Because sin is ugly. 
The whole purpose of offerings and taking innocent animals and offering them up is because of man's sin. And we need to realize sin is ugly and sin costs. And our sin, listen, our sin costs God his son. And we get all freaked out over a lamb and we kind of look at Jesus and just like it's okay. It's God's son came and took our place. So as they're doing these offerings, it's not bringing, listen, it's not bringing them anything that they don't already have because Jesus is there ruling and reigning. Now, he's not the prince spoken of here. We talked about that last time, but he is there. And all the offerings are, again, symbolic looking at what he's done. Listen, you and I look at what he's done, and we come to communion, and we celebrate communion. They're going to do it a little bit different, but they're looking at it. It's symbolic. And then verse 17 says, Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offering, grain offering, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. And he shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, offering and to make atonement for the house of Israel. So once again, men are doing all of these offerings showing that they believe Jesus is real and they're demonstrating that by what they're doing. Just like you and I demonstrate we believe, listen, we demonstrate we believe that he died for our sins by taking of the cup and eating of the bread. It's not just a ritual. We're demonstrating something. So they're going to be doing the same thing. Verse 18 says, thus says the Lord God, and so now he's going to lay out the feasts that they keep, and there's going to be, you know, just three of them. Uh, thus says the Lord God, the first month, on the first day of the month, you should take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering, put it on the doorposts of the temple, and on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gatepost, and on the, on the gate of the inner court, and so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned intentionally or unintentionally, or in ignorance, thus you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover as a feast for seven days, uh, unleavened bread shall be eaten. So they kind of celebrate the new year, right? There's the first feast they're going to do on the first day of the first month. Then on the 14th day, they celebrate Passover. And on that day, the prince, in verse 22, shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for his sin offering. And then on seven days, the feast shall, uh, on the seventh day, the feast shall, uh, of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls, seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, a ki and a kid of the goats, daily for a, a sin offering. And the people shall prepare grain offering of one ephah for each bull, one ephah for each ram, and together with a hint of oil uh, with each ephah. Then on the seventh month, on the 15th day of the month, the, uh, at the feast, he shall likewise for seven days, according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, Offering and the grain offering. So remember, Israel had feast days, right? Remember, three times a year, the men were to come to Jerusalem and they were to come for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it changes a little bit. Now they come for the New Year, Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now there are those who make a big deal out of that and they say, well, Pentecost is missing and they start plugging everything in. You can Google that and listen to those guys. I think, listen, I think it's kind of crazy to speculate. 
and start getting all spiritual. When somebody does that, here's the thing. When somebody does that, you can't argue with them because they're saying, here's, you know, here's what it means to me. Well, that may not be what it means. And you and I, listen, we need to be Bereans and we need to study our Bible and we need to not speculate. Hey, if the Bible's silent, it's best that we be silent. And so, hey, Pentecost isn't there. I don't know. Now, here's what I know. You'll have a thousand years hanging out on this planet. You can stop and ask Jesus anytime. Hey, how come we're not doing Pentecost anymore? And he'll tell you. And you get it from him. You don't have to speculate about it. So, you know, it's like, it's like I read some of these guys and I go nuts. And so, anyway, that's kind of getting into that. Now we're going to talk about the manner of worship and the way they're going to come in. And again, we'll kind of, you know, jump through this and, and, and look at a few things. So verse 1, thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces to, toward the east shall be shut six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be open, and on the day of the new moon it shall be open. So bottom line, listen, so it's only open during certain times. That still doesn't mean, listen, a prince still, because if you remember last week we found out the only one that goes through, that's the prince, but he's still not gonna go through that. He's just gonna come and, and, and uh, worship there. Verse two, and the prince shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost, and the priest shall prepare his burnt off Offering and his peace, his peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance of the gateway before the Lord on Sabbaths and new moons. So you kind of get the idea that during the millennium, there's a whole lot of worshiping going on. Now, we like worship, and you know, I'm I'm glad that we worship with guitars and drums and vocals rather than bulls and rams and lambs, right? I mean, I'm glad that we don't have to bring a bunch of, you know, a herd of animals in here and begin cutting them up and throwing them on fire and roast. I mean, it'd be okay to roast them if we get to eat them, but, you know, doing all that. I'm glad, I'm glad we worship a different way, but here's what you need to understand. This is worship. It's not just slaughtering animals. It's not just butchering animals. It's worship. It's an act of worship to the Lord. It's coming to Jesus, recognizing what he has done for them, and listen, honoring him with that. So they're bringing them, they're worshiping, and the, you know, the, the prince leads them. And once again, I don't know who this prince is. And you can, you can listen to other people. Feel free to listen to some people. They're gonna tell you exactly who it is, and I think they're exactly wrong. You know, it's not the Messiah. And there are a whole bunch of writings that it is the Messiah. Can't be the Messiah. He's doing sin offerings. And we're going to find out really in a minute really why it's not the Messiah in just a moment. So listen. Uh, and, and then others begin to speculate. And again, speculation is going to get you in trouble. So he goes through all that offering. Verse 9. Now notice what the people do. So that's the prince coming in, the people, the priests helping him. But when the people, verse 9, when the people of the land come before the Lord, this is interesting, on the appointed feast days, and those feast days we talked about, right? New Year's, Passover, and Tabernacle. When they come on those appointed days, whoever enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate, and whoever 
whosoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way, uh, by way of the gate through which he came, but he shall go out through the opposite gate. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. That's a little detail in there. And it's like, why are they doing that? Now, I, I'm, I'm a simple guy. And so I kind of take this simply. I think it's like traffic control right? If you're coming in, you just keep going, and you get people going through there, and you do it. Now, there are those who say, no, you have to understand. There's a deep spiritual meaning. So you can listen to those guys if you want. Again, I think it's just, I just think it's simple. Like, if you go in this gate, you go out this gate. There's a whole bunch of people. If you go, if you go in the south gate and then go back out the south gate, you're backsliding. Seriously? Like, that's what you get out of that? I think it's just a simple thing. You're headed in one direction and you just keep going and you do it. So you can read into it what you want and you can have fun with it. I, I think, again, I think it's sort of simple. So they go out the same gate or they go out the opposite gate they came in. And verse 10, the prince shall then be in their midst and when they go in, he shall go in and when they go out, he shall go out. So again, telling us the festivals, what to do during the festivals. Now, skip to verse 16, because here's where I do think it really proves this is not the Messiah. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. Can't be the Messiah, can it? Can't be Jesus. Jesus don't have sons. So that's telling me the prince is definitely not the Messiah. And when people tell me it is the Messiah, I'm thinking, man, you skipped part of your Bible. Now, those who do that, then they get to verse 16 and they change their way they interpret things. If people are teaching you through the Bible and they start teaching one way and then they suddenly change, I don't think that's a good thing. I think you should interpret the way you interpret all the way through the Bible. You can't, you can't change the rules in the middle of the game. So listen, this prince has sons. He can give them the land, verse 17. But if he gives a gift to some of his, of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, uh, it shall be his until the year of jubilee, after which it shall return to the prince. Now I want you to take note of something. Have you noticed going through this that they're gonna be honoring the Sabbath again? Did you pick up on that? because the gate's gonna be open on the Sabbath. That's good for the Sabbatarians, man. They'll be really happy. But they're gonna be doing it. The Sabbath, once again, is gonna be instituted and, and, and it's gonna be honored and celebrated. The new moons are gonna be celebrated in the way they were supposed to. And the year of Jubilee, you're back to the year of Jubilee. So for that thousand year reign, you're gonna be celebrating the year of Jubilee and the year of Jubilees every 50 years, right? And remember the Sabbath, listen carefully. The Sabbath isn't just like taking that day and honoring it. According to scripture, the Sabbath, you go to the temple and you give sacrifices, you worship. So those Sabbatarians who are going, yes, I knew we were supposed to be doing that. Hey, if you're gonna honor the Sabbath today, do it right now. Number one, you need to do it on Saturday, not Sunday. Number two, you need to start slaughtering some animals and giving uh, offerings. And most people, I don't wanna do that. Number three, every six years, you need to take a year off of work because that's part of the seventh. And then every 50 years, you celebrate the year of Jubilee. Everything goes back to its original owner. So if you're buying a house, you gotta give it back. Now we don't like the Sabbath anymore, right? Now we're like, stop it. But hey, 
if you're going to follow it, so the year of Jubilee, everybody gets their land back again, just like it was in the Old Testament. Verse 18, moreover, the prince shall not take any, listen to this, any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property, and he shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Here's what God is saying. Remember the, the thing I put up, right? It went from top to bottom, and, and maybe we can get that, I'll try and get that back up in a minute. It goes from top to the bottom, so the king that's in the middle, right, the prince, where the prince is, he can't jump up into Asher and go, hey, you know, or, I'm sorry, up into Dan, those of us who have been to Israel, Dan's the place, right? And you jump up there and go, man, I love this place because it's got a nice, it's got that, that nice Jordan River coming through and all that beauty, and you know what? I'm gonna take it away from you because I'm the prince. Here's what God's saying. The prince, you get the middle. You don't take anybody else's stuff. What was the big deal with Israel? Remember when Israel asked for a king? We just read that in Samuel, reading through the Bible. Remember when they asked for a king? And they go, hey, Sammy, we're sick of you. And we don't like you. Well, we kind of like you, but your kids, man, them, them boys, they go dunking for beef and they're stealing stuff from us and we don't like them. And so, you know what? We want a king because we want to be like every nation around us. Remember what Samuel told him? Okay, you can have a king, but if you want a king, here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna take your sons and daughters and he's gonna make them slaves. And then he's gonna take some of your land and he's gonna use your land for himself. And then he's gonna do this. You still want a king? Yeah, we would rather have that than no king. How dumb, right? So here's what God's saying during the millennium. This prince gets no land other than what's already given him, right? You can't go rip the people off and take the people away from them. And then 19 through 24, again, talking about how they're going to do it, the way they're going to prepare the offerings, and, and that's, that part you need to read on your own, how they're going to, you know, the different, where the kitchen's going to be set up, where the sinks are going to be set up. Now, verse, chapter 47 is where it gets really interesting. So in chapter 47, so remember, this is all a vision that Ezekiel's having, right? In chapter 47, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. So here's what's going on. Now he comes back, and there's water. And I, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking there's, you know, it's like when you go home and you, your, your pipe broke and there's a little bit of water coming out, right? It's not, it freaks you out, but it's not like horrible. It's just, just a little bit. So he's seeing this little trickle of water. And he's going, well, that's kind of interesting. Now, here's what's really interesting, because he's up on Mount Moriah. Again, those of us who have been to Israel, man, there ain't no water up there. What's the matter with you? And he sees this water coming out, and hey, is he imagining something? I, th I think Ezekiel's thinking, what's going on here? Now, I know, listen, I know he's still in vision stage, but for him it's reality. And he sees that going on, and then verse 2 says, listen, he brought me out by the way of the north gate. So this was up in the temple proper, right? He sees the water coming out of the temple. And now, listen, now the angel takes him out of the city, out of the north gate, out of that area. And he says, listen, he took me out of the north gate, led me around to the, uh, on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out of the right side of it. So now, man, he comes out, and there's water kind of, now it's kind of pouring out. And he's going, what is going on, right? And some of us are going, what is going on? Wait, it gets better. 
Verse 3, and when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the water came up to my ankles. So he says, hey, Ezekiel, come on out here. And he went about 1,700 feet, 1,750 feet. So he went about 1,700 feet. So that's quite a ways, right? And so you have a, up here you had a trickle, right, in the temple, and then down here it was kind of running out, and then you go out 1,700 feet. It's up to your ankles. You're going, whoa, this is kind of cool, right? It gets better and better. And verse four, and then again, he measured about 1,750 feet and he brought me through the waters and the waters came up to my knees. And again, he measured 1,000 uh, and, and again, about that same distance, 1,750. And he brought me through the water and it came up to my waist. And again, he measured the same amount. So, so far, he's got about 7,000 feet, right? And he says, listen, and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep and the water in which... Uh in which I, I, I in, I'm sorry, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. So now, listen, man, now it's like a full-on river. It's like a flood. Now, if you know anything about Israel, and especially Jerusalem, that ain't, that ain't happening. There is not going to be a flood coming off of Mount Moriah down and go east and across the Kidron Valley and do that. That is not going to happen unless God is making it happen. And this is a God thing. And this is crazy, man. Now you've got a river. And hey, man, it gets, it gets, it's like, I think Ezekiel's going, what is going on? How can this be? This doesn't, this makes no sense unless God is doing something. Now he tells us in verse six, and he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And I think Ezekiel's going, uh-huh, right? I always love it when God asks us that rhetorical question. Have you seen this? Well, duh. It's like up to my neck. What do you mean have I seen it? I'm trying to swim in it, right? And then he says, then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. So evidently, Ezekiel's out in the middle of the river. And so he brings him to the bank. And then listen, he says, and when I returned there along the bank uh, of the river, uh, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region, goes down the valley and enters the sea. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now here's the thing, man. What sea is he talking about? He's talking about the Dead Sea. That's the only direction, man. Hey, it's not going towards the Mediterranean. It's going the other way. If you go east from Jerusalem, you're going towards the Dead Sea. So imagine, man, here's this flood coming down. And those who have been there, man, once you get, once you get over that one range, man, it's just all downhill, right? And he sees this water heading that way. And, and it's a whole big river. Now, well, we're going to read some more because this just gets better and better. In verse 9, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live and there will be very great multitude of fish because these waters, because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. Now listen, a lot of people begin to read this and they think Revelation chapter 21, 22. If you just, you know, some of us are ahead in Bible reading and read that. This is not that river. That's a whole different time. Number one, that's a way different time, uh, time frame chronologically. This is a river in Zechariah chapter 14. And obviously the river in, uh, in Ezekiel 47, because that's what we're reading. So listen, man, this river's going down and it's healing things. I believe, listen, I believe it's, for me it's kind of simple. Where's the river coming from? The temple. 
Whose glory is in that temple? Do you remember last week? Whose glory is in the temple? The glory of God. I believe it's just teaching every blessing that comes, physical or spiritual, comes from the glory of God, comes from God. And blessing is just flowing down and it blesses as it goes and it blesses more and more. Verse 10, it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglium and they will, be, they will be places for spreading their nets and their fish will be of the, of the same kinds as a fish in the great sea, exceedingly many. Now listen, if you've been there, I, I love to go to En Gedi and read this passage. En Gedi is pretty desolate. Now you do have the, the waterfalls up there, but there's nothing like this. And here's what he's saying, man. That water's gonna go down, and it's going down, and as it's hitting the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is gonna come alive. It's called the Dead Sea, but it's really, really not dead, dead. It's mostly dead, but not all the way dead. So listen, but all of that's gonna come and it's gonna heal all of that because God is gonna heal. And from En Gedi, I always like to picture because on, on En Gedi you got those cliffs going up. You can sit on a cliff with your fishing pole and catch fish, right? And catch fish out of the Dead Sea. And, 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 so, and then he says in verse 11, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt along the bank of the river. And on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food and their leaves uh, will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water uh, flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for medicine. And again, a lot of people want to relate that to Revelation 22. It's a different time. It's not the same thing. Kind of the same principle going on, but not the same thing. So he gives that. Then verse 13 and following. So there's a river, verse 13 down to verse 19. We're all talking about borders. And I would read those, but some of those are hard to pronounce. And hey, in our day, even on our, even on our Bible maps in the back of your Bible, they don't know where these places are. So some people go, well, I don't think that's right. In Ezekiel's day, they knew exactly where they were at. As Ezekiel began to speak this to the people, remember, he's speaking to people who are in exile. And as he began to speak it, they knew the boundaries, and here's what they're thinking. Finally, Israel gets all the boundary that they were promised back in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 15, uh, or 13 and 15. Finally, that land is ours. So it's gonna make sense to them, although it may not with us. But I wanted to read, uh, well, I wanted to read from verse 21. Look at, he says, thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel, and it shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves, for the strangers who dwell among you and who will bear children among you. They shall be, as your, uh, be to you as native born among the children of Israel, and they shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Do you hear, do you hear what he's saying? What is he saying? Gentiles now are let in. It's now time the Gentiles can have an inheritance along with the tribes of Israel. This is a cool time, right? And it shall be, verse 23, it shall be that whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. So no more, listen, no more of, hey, you Gentile dogs, you stay on the other side of the river, man, because this is our land. It's all gonna be shared and it's all gonna come in. Now he begins to divide up the land in verse 48 or chapter 48, verse one. I knew we were gonna make it. You guys listen good. 
He says, now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon at the entrance of Hamath to Hazar Anan. Now, did that make a lot of sense? Do you know where that is now? Clear it up for you? I didn't think so. So listen, the, uh, and the border of Damascus northward. So just kind of giving us, and then notice, notice this. He says there will be a section for Dan, and then the border of Dan, there shall be a section for Asher. On the border of Asher, a section for Naphtali. On the border of Naphtali, a section for Manasseh. On the border of Manasseh, a section for Ephraim. On the border of Ephraim, a section for Reuben. And then uh, from, the, uh, uh, from Reuben, a section for Judah. So again, I'm gonna put that map back up and we can kind of see what he's talking about here. Look at from the very top of the map. He says, you know, you start out with Dan and then you just go down and you go Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, uh, Reuben, and Judah. So you see, he just said each one borders the other one and you just step it right down, right? And then you come after those tribes, you come down to uh, where the holy place is. And then after that, if you, if you jump all the way down to verse 24, he says, listen, he says from the border of Benjamin uh, to the, uh, and, and then there will be Simeon and off of the border of Simeon and Issachar, off of Issachar, Zebulun, off of Zebulun, uh, Gad, and she'll be there, and, and Gad is, they took it down, put my map back up, and Gad's at the very bottom. Now, something that I think is interesting, if you kind of check it out, and if you go back, go back to Genesis, and go back and check out the 12 sons, you know, of Israel, and it's sort of interesting, the ones that were born to Leah and Rachel are the ones that are closest to the center, and the ones that were born by the maids are further away. Kind of an interesting insight, you know, that I think is going, I'm not sure it means anything real spectacular, but it's interesting the way God laid them out. So God lays them all out and gives them back this land again, and that's the land that was, that was promised to them in Joshua. And so they finally get all the land and they're not scattered all over and, and taken all over. Now, so that, and, and if you paid attention, hopefully you paid attention to the different tribes because it's gonna change a little bit. Look at what goes on down to verse 30. And I know I skipped a whole bunch, so hey, I, I, I know that we skipped from verse eight all the way down to verse 23. Verse eight through 23 is talking about that center section again and kind of dividing that up. So you, you guys are gonna do that for homework, right? Okay, good. So, and then, and then we did, uh, kind of skipped around through verse 23. Now, verse 30 says, these are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. Three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, and one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one for Joseph, one for Benjamin, one for Dan. In verse 33, on the south side, measuring 4,000, the same amount, one for Simeon, one for Issachar, and one for Zebulun. In verse 34, the same amount on the, on the uh, west side, one for Gad, one for Asher, one for Naphtali. Now, there was a big change between the land division and the gates. Did you pick up on it? The big change was you don't have Manasseh and Ephraim. You have Joseph, and Joseph is put back in. It's interesting to me to do a study on the way the tribes are listed from, you know, we know the, we know the 12 sons, there was Joseph. 
and then Joseph's sons were given uh, some of the land. So sometimes, listen, sometimes you have Joseph mentioned and, and sometimes you have both of his sons. Sometimes you have both of his sons and him and no Levi. Sometimes you have, you know, him and, and not his sons and Levi. Sometimes, guess who gets kicked out? Occasionally, Dan gets kicked out. If you read the book of Revelation, when there's 144,000 from each tribe, no Dan. And people go, well, it's because Dan blew it so bad. If you know the history, Dan was given land kind of in the center of, of Israel. And they didn't like that land and they couldn't, they couldn't uh, de uh, uh, kick out the people who were there. So they decided to go up north, that beautiful spot where we go to that's Dan now, the Dan Preserve. They went up there, and I understand why they went up there. It was gorgeous. But they were disobedient to God, and people say, because they were disobedient to God, they're left out of Revelation. Well, here, they're there in the millennium, so that can't be. So why do the, why do the tribes get named different ways at different times? That's for you to figure out. A little bit of question. You guys have become theologians. You can read through and do that. Now, to wrap this up, because this is great. I love the end of this. Verse 35. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. So you kind of, again, get the whole measurement all the way around. And the name of the city from that day on shall be the Lord is there. Oh. Now here's the question for us after reading all of this and going all the way through this. Is the Lord there? I'm talking about you personally. Is he's there? Is it printed over your forehead maybe? That'd be a great tattoo. The Lord is there. And only you can answer that. Is he there? Is he living there? So no longer is it gonna be called Jerusalem. It's gonna be called the Lord is there. And as they're, as they're, they're, they're there, and imagine, imagine what went through Ezekiel's heart when he heard those words. When he heard from now on, listen, from now on that city that was destroyed, from now on, it's gonna be called, the Lord is there. And Ezekiel went, yes. And I believe, listen, I believe with all my heart, man, Ezekiel could go to his grave in Babylon knowing that everything was gonna be okay. And you and I, listen, it gets bad. I know, I, I think our world's pretty messed up. I say that all the time, and it gets messed her up and messed her up. But you know what? God is still in control. He's working his plan. And you and I have this tremendous privilege to represent him to this world and go around telling people, here's what we can do. We can go around and knock on people's hearts and say, hey, do you know Jesus? Because if you, if you ask Jesus to come into your life, then you can declare the Lord is there and you can be part of that. Let's stand up and pray. Father, as we do get ready to go tonight and to leave tonight, I, I, I thank you, God, so much for your grace in our lives and and Lord, I do pray, I pray for all of us standing here that, man, that would be, that would be our, our song, our motto. The Lord is there. We can point inside of us. And we would have that assurance of a tremendous relationship with you. 
And Lord, we can think and we can read here in Ezekiel and some of it's easy to get bogged down in and Lord, frankly, even kind of get messed up in. But the truth of reading all of this is the fact that God, you promise to take care of that nation. You promised back in Genesis chapter 13 that something incredible was gonna happen to the seed of Abraham. And here we see, past our time, into this time that we call the millennium, when you come back to rule and to reign, that we see during that time that all of the tribes, none of them are gonna be lost. There's not gonna be 10 lost and only two found. All of the tribes are listed there and they're all given an inheritance and they're all given a place. And we get to be part of that and we get to observe that and watch the fact that you keep your promise and that your promises never fail and that as men and women of God, we can count on that and we can trust you. So Lord, I pray for each one of us, no matter what our circumstance or situation might be tonight, that we would rest assured God, that we can count on you. And we would grab a hold of you and we would trust you. And we could even tonight as we, as we put our heads on those pillows, that as our head hits that pillow, we could just, our last thought before we go to sleep would be, God is there. Thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as we get